0: what is creativity and what are its origins and how do we access creativity in our lives this podcast explores the intersection of creativity imagination and everyday life at this crossroads we experience wonder and magic and if we're lucky transformation Welcome to the quotidian. Welcome back to the Quotidian, I'm Bradley Dennis. I'm extremely excited to introduce this week's guest, performer, MC, and scholar, Dave Krellin. He might be better known by his vaudevillian nom de guerre, Armitage Shanks, the one-time ringmaster of Seattle's Circus Contraption, and the frontman for musical act, Phineas Gage. He's appeared for the past decade as the MC extraordinaire for a multitude of international burlesque shows. But in 2017, most notably, he directed Storyville Rising with Seattle Immersive Theater, resurrecting the infamous New Orleans red light district of the turn of the century. In that project, Dave explored themes of power, society, race, money, and of course, sex. And these are themes never far from his work as he continues to explore where we as a people need to examine our assumptions and weaknesses. We get into some really engaging territory regarding the role of performance in modern times and the differences between hierarchical and rhizomatic structures within interpersonal work. Dave is currently reinventing himself, as is his nature, at UC Santa Cruz, both teaching and finishing a degree in theater studies. To support the work we do here at The Quotidian and at Carolina Commons, you can like, subscribe, comment, and share. You can also become an official Quotidiot by joining our Patreon campaign to receive gifts, unique content, and the chance to be on the show. Thank you as ever for being here and for joining in the conversation. And now please enjoy the intelligent and devilishly charismatic Dave Krellin. Mr. David Krellen, welcome to the Quotidian. It's great to see you. Hey, Brandon.
1: Great (laughs) to see you, too. It's been a minute.
0: It has. It has. Uh, I'm super eager to talk to you about lots of stuff. But for folks who don't know you, who haven't been to see a burlesque show and don't know Armitage, Shanks, Can you give a little bit of a background, uh, artistically what you've been doing in Seattle for the, you know, 20 years, 30 years and, and where you come from?
1: Sure. I'll give it my best, best eight bars anyway. Um, so it's interesting starting out with this idea of burlesque because really burlesque has always been a kind of, uh, a small part of a, a, a kind of a Venn diagram of how I, how my practices showed up. And that was essentially, you know, I would say that my career in earnest, aside from spending early years studying traditional theater, film, et cetera, you know, without going too far down that uh, old dusty road, started with, as you know, circus contraption. And as co-founder of that, which for you know the many people that wouldn't know circus contraption, certainly at this point, was a one-ring European-style traveling circus, mainly using circus as an aesthetic framework in which to present radical, oftentimes subversive, uh, liminally spaced, somewhat Brechtian performance live performance. And then as our skills grew, we were a circus that still retained those elements uh, from the late 90s up until 2010, traveling the world a bit with a 10 to 17 member troupe.
0: Which was also a full band as well. So music was a, a large component of that.
1: Huge. I mean, that was my background before coming into Circus Contraption was with the band Phineas Gage here in Seattle. And that sort of morphed. I was already doing a kind of a proto ringmaster sort of presentation. Um, And so, you know, in the circus, creating Circus Contraption with uh, Laura Paxton. um, And of course, then all of the other wonderful people that, you know, continued and we all became co-conspirators in this madness.
0: Yeah
1: was always rooted in music and always rooted in this what I consider very pr- primal um, emphatic, embodied space in which then to receive the rest of the information because I think music can affect us and, and, and dial us in in that way. You know?
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, so did that and then and then from there, when circus contraption reached its uh, its end of life, I was I continued with that character, Armitage Shanks, to travel around the world for about eight years as an itinerant ringmaster for hire, slash director, producer, educator, in the areas of circus, a lot of burlesque. The burlesque community was gracious and open there, their lives and creativity to what I had to offer, um, and of course many of those shows were. In the same way that, as you know, like Moisture Festival here in Seattle is this hybrid that envelops all of these arts that I kind of loosely put into the category of cabaret, which encompasses circus, vaudeville, burlesque, etc. cetera. Yeah. Um, and did that, and then the, with the COVID moment hitting and finding myself uh, moving into a place where I was thinking about what's next. Because truthfully, I found that I was – I was seeking a new way in which to create, express than what I'd been doing for you know, 20 plus years. It was a beautiful space to inhabit, but I'm someone who always is in need of recreating that artistic space in which to challenge myself. Right. And so my project following that was a documentary immersive documentary theater based around turn of the century in New Orleans. Um, and did a, a, a project I'm quite proud of that was based here in Seattle with Cerm- Seattle Immersive Theater called Storyville Rising mm-hmm. that dealt with race, power, money, sex, gender, etc. Uh, and using turn of century New Orleans in this area called Storyville as a surrogate for many of the things that we're experiencing and addressing isn't in the, yeah. is in, in the present. Time. and that really shaped my my practice moving forward in, in wanting to speak in larger movements mm-hmm. as it were
0: you know because theater is is a language that we share I'm very curious to hear you talk a little bit about the differences between sort of presentational work as opposed to the immersive world that you're talking about and how how why that choice and, and what it provides or what it allows you as an artist that sort of the proscenium doesn't, if, if those were conscious choices.
1: Yeah. Well, I think there were, there were, it was a conscious choice on some, but it was also a natural extension. Mm -hmm. Throughout the life of both the band I was in and circus. One of the, one of the things that I guess, let me go back a bit. One of the things that I found limiting about working in the field of acting theater
0: mm-hmm.
1: were, were many fold, but a couple of the problematics for me was one that there was not enough agency um, as a creator um, that you functioned as a creative person in a very specific way. Whereas with circus contraption moving forward, we created what pleased us. We made up what our content was. We made the choices about what to address. Yeah. Um, so that that through line was the same. Both of them, as you know from seeing Circus Contraption, and much like the groups that you've been involved with, Umo et cetera, is, and maybe maybe to a larger degree, but you know, we were never a fourth wall. We were always in your face, literally sitting on your lap, up in your grill when you step into this space. This community is what makes this night, this night specifically and no other. And you don't get off the hook. You're implicated and we're going to complicate your circumstances and create a liminal space. As my friend Michael says, where when he first saw us, whether you don't know whether, you know, these are actually escaped lunatics from the insane asylum or, (laughs) you know, this is all part of a world we're all being drawn into. So for me, that aspect of community and not allowing this kind of hierarchical distance between audience and performer. Mm -hmm. I've always been very interested in how to decentralize that, how to destabilize it, how to make that space more complicated and more voluminous and more involving, allowing the the audience to have their agency as well, other Mm -hmm. than as passive spectators. And so for me, that jump. You know, Circus Contraption, in a lot of ways, was nothing, if not, in its own way, immersive theater. Right. You know, after motion, and so to make that move into Storyville Rising and that context was more about a choice of the content and how I, what the delivery system was for the content, uh, and using an, an historical framework to specifically. I think one of the changes, if I stop myself, is that the distance between what I learned from Circus Contraption and my travels as in Armin and Shanks moving forward into Storyville Rising was a performative and creative turn that is becoming more and more a part of my practice, and that's addressing social justice issues yeah, and addressing um, how it is we exist as humans in community and what can we do to... Uh, shine a light, trouble that space, ask important questions, make inquiries. And so Storyville Rising was a sustained effort to address a specific set of circumstances where circus contraption was episodic. And we spoke to a lot of things that were really valuable, and important, but it was sort of you know, it was episodic in the sense that whatever that message was, with the exception of our last few shows that had a more overarching narrative, was to move into a space where I was dealing with a specific set of things that I wanted to address. Um, but the environment was much the same. It was still It was still immersive. I still used circus in that context, and I used transgressive burlesque in that context. So I still kind of kept some of my, you know, loved ones with me, as it were.
0: Yeah. For sure, and I'm I'm very curious to hear about how effective you felt it was, and and this, there's a my agenda with the question is that I felt, I think similar to what you were just expressing uh, about the limits of presentational acting and, and and that space, is that it's very easy to marginalize in the culture. It's very, and and we were speaking before we started recording a little bit about the about how the arts are not are kind of given short shrift at least in this culture in this in this country and easily dismissible easily set aside as entertainment and so one of the things you're talking about is creating community and creating uh, meaningful tools and to engage these problem spaces like social justice And which is such a sensitive topic for so many people and right now so divisive. So how how are you feeling that it's um, it's effective and what makes that different? Like what are how are people engaging with it? And if you could talk a little bit about when you say um, creating community with that, what you mean?
1: I guess what I mean, you know, my sense of community can include, but it's certainly not limited to Kumbaya moments. So, for me, one of the things with Storyville Rising was engaging in an active community bringing people into a space that, again, together, we all become implicated in what's happening. So, there's a little bit of a ritual feel to that, too. There, I think there always is. There always was a circus contraption. There always certainly, I think, is in music. Mm-hmm. And there certainly is um, in an immersive theater environment. Yeah. There is something that you are calling those into a circle in which then, and I think theater does this in general to greater or lesser degrees, is theater is ritual. Theater is a, you know, a we, we draw a ring around something, an idea, an experience. And we all are in that together. I think more passive forms of theater oftentimes have lost sight of that right. in favor of perhaps a more facile form of entertainment. But I think that potentiality is still there in live performance and certainly was with Storyville. I mean, you were there and you were in the space and specifically in the context of that work. What I mean by community is, is that you were drawn into a space and you had a set of experiences happen with your fellow humans. And then you went into, there are three distinct spaces in the context of the show. And you went to these stations of the cross, as it were. Mm -hmm you return to this central space and through the ritual of going through that together right you all come out with a set of of questions interrogations joys um that implies a sense of a communal bond or a communal uh discourse yeah Whether or not you're sitting and talking with someone at the table next to you, you know they are seeing and experiencing the same things of content that cause them, that cause you to have to make certain choices or certain thought processes about what it is you're witnessing. And I think that only happens when you're dealing with things that do sort of require one to show up.
0: Does Do you feel like it has staying power for those participants? The reason I I bring that up, and I'll put a pin in ritual for for later in the conversation, is my sense has always been that the intention, that circle is drawn. And like you say, a lot of theater has lost sight of that... transformative aspect of the experience. And while we do create a shared experience there and everyone can see, you know, their neighbor and understand that we're all in this together in a certain sense, once you've passed that threshold on the way out, how is that experience staying with a person and how does it affect change over a long term, which I think is ultimately our goal?
1: You know, I think it's I think it's a complicated question, Bradley, because while it may be a hopeful outcome, I think it's tricky to make it as a goal because one it implies a certain sort of positionality on the part of us as creatives and theater makers that we are we are teaching people something, right? And while we may want to present something we hope is, is thoughtful and causes people to think and perhaps learn something about themselves, one of the things I like about the forms that I work in primarily is that it is leaving space for that question to be answered by the person themselves because as much as we would like to, there's no guarantee that anything that we do will per se have a lasting effect on a given individual. Right. We can we aspire to that, I think. Mm-hmm. But I'm also trying to be weary at increasingly of my position pedagogically, because I think that can be a tricky space to overly
0: occupy. Absolutely. Given given um, our place in the culture. <laughs>
1: Right. Well, well, and I think just in general, yeah. um, have you read it? There's a guy I just started reading, um, Jacques Ranciere, and he has a book called The Emancipated Spectator,
0: mm.
1: and it speaks about some of these these challenges and and not only in the context of of us as creatives making a thing, but and spectators watching a thing, but how that can apply in sort of A pedagogical framework, which I think sometimes when we're dealing with stuff of content, we set ourselves up in a certain kind of pedagogical position, right? You're going to come into this thing, and I'm going to say these things are important to me, and hopefully they'll make an effect on you, right? Um, But you know, what they leave with and what they stay with. I mean, one hopes, I hope that people came and saw Storyville and came out of it with a set of questions that they felt they needed to answer in themselves, or at least it led them to other roads of investigation. Do I have to allow that some people went, that was weird and freaky and boy, that bourbon was good. <laughs> and they go on to the next thing. Right. I, you know, you meet
0: people where they yes, are,
1: but that, yeah. And, and that they showed up that they had a chance to be exposed to a set of ideas that were, and that were able to patronize, you know, this human with a bunch of other creative individuals and took their, their two hours of time. Um, you know, I hope that I'm hopeful that, that, that there's something sustainable, but I can't really, that there's an, a, a quality of that, that I think only rests with that person themselves. And that goes into an entire matrix of culture, right, right. Um, that that speak to: Are we reinforcing these ideas? Are we making space for people to hold these ideas? Do we value these ideas? And increasingly, obviously, in our present situation, a lot of those things feel very contingent.
0: I don't want to belabor the point, but I'm I'm very curious. Because it, there's there's something there. I mean, it, when you're talking about ritual, in particular, the reason why it affects change in small communities is because everyone knows the songs, everyone knows the beats, everyone is familiar with and becomes a participant in that performance. You know, whether you're talking about you know Haitian voodoo rituals or Catholic mass, um, and one of the things you know when you're describing Storyville or you're describing um, circus contraption, there are those moments where we're together and we're we're experiencing something it's still presentational. you know what I mean and I'm curious this this is an open question, and I'm curious to discuss this with you is how do you how do you get to the other side of that? Because we're at this time and space where we're trying to tackle these issues of social justice. We're trying to tackle these issues of, of this huge divisiveness in our country. For myself, I struggle to find what role the arts and theater in particular have to play in that. So I, it's kind of an open question. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot
1: about that as well. And truthfully, you know, I mean, I've made art all my life probably no particular reason to think that i'll actually stop Mm -hmm. but i can't tell you probably a week doesn't go by where i wonder if i would be of more utility just going and working you know helping people feed themselves yeah or you know in some sort of like direct and and that's one of the ways i think i guess one of my answers to that bradley is that the fact that we're asking ourselves a question about what the role of the arts, and if there is one, and if it's valid in any way, speaks to a foreclosure and a certain direness of our circumstances that we're even entertaining that. Absolutely. We have been chipped away at as a culture yeah. for a long time. That, And then when you look at some of these very serious existential threats, climate, fascism, oligarchy um late capitalist you know um ridiculousness that is extracting everything from everybody i think that it can feel at times like they're like creating art is a luxury we can't afford as it were and
0: that's the dominant narrative
1: and, but but yet, I think that a more pertinent question or pertinent inquiry should be how important, like how we cannot live without that experience. Right. Because if you look at theater as ritual, if you look at it as a place of community, as a place of con-greeting, as a place of consanguineity, mm-hmm. as it were, we cannot, we can little afford any opportunity Opportunity not being given to us to experience those things. But it's also, in some ways, you know, to speak to kind of more facile forms of entertainment and presentation that seem to dominate a market driven economy. It's a tricky space because if you look at, you know, people doing meaningful art is belittled. In the same way that, you know, if you, it's looked at like, I think the same way that our culture actually thinks about how we look at value with vis-a-vis money. If you don't have X amount of dollars, you're a failure. Right. If you, you there's an extractive model that's happening right now, and that has been increasingly happening, that places art as a as a loser in the equation. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a, uh, a very unfortunate space to be in. I think our culture very much needs meaningful art, art that is striving for something. We can't guarantee the outcome, but one can we can guarantee if we don't embed our work with meaning and content to speak to things that are deeply valuable to the human experience. Well, then there'll be no room for anybody to even have the choice to walk away with him.
0: Absolutely, yeah. So I want to set set that aside for a second. And um, one aspect that we were talking about earlier was the fact that you've you've gone back to to school to kind of refocus some of your attentions and. And discipline, and I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit about that, and about what you're what you're hoping to gain in there, um, and and what comes next out of that.
1: I think that there were when I look at where I'm at now and where my practice is leading now, and I think about the path that I'd been on from Phineas Gage to Circus Contraption to Storyville Rising, etc the tendencies were there. Mm-hmm. And, and to kind of distill that, I have, my practice has shifted to an overt stance or position, figurative turn toward the basic premise of connectivity and a kind of grounded sense that all of my work I want moving forward to carry the quality of the, the idea, the fact that we are implicitly connected with both us and our, and our more than human kin. Mm-hmm. That there is a, I've been deeply influenced by um, a philosopher I was turned on to in school by the name of Gilles Deleuze. Mm-hmm. And especially around uh, the figure of the rhizome
0: as a That's the, central uh, is book, A Thousand Plateaus. Uh, a thousand plateaus. Thank you. Yeah. yeah.
1: And you. this idea that, you know, we have, especially in the West, kind of proceeded from this subject object distinction in a way that creates sort of an arboreal structure, right? These vertically nested hierarchies of things we decide mm-hmm. and we put them in categories and whichever category has the more yeses or nos wins. Right. And these become truths that are now fixed. Right. And we operate in things. Whereas a more rhizomatic way to look at things is a more horizontally diffuse. All of these things are connected. And the truth of a given set of connections is temporal. It exists. It exists to fit a context of a particular moment, time, place, etc., And so this to me puts us in dialogue with a much more fluid way of imagining ourselves into being and imagining ourselves in connection with other humans and with other more than human kin in every aspect of, you know, this physical and material world. Um, so that's been a huge turn about I've always felt that way. And now that is becoming kind of the foundational premise for how I move forward in my creative work, my pedagogy, my life, because I feel like that is the only way that we are going to stem the tide uh, is by an essentialist view that all of this is connected, because then if we have that view the set of questions it asks us to answer cannot emulate the other, cannot emulate the world without emulating ourselves. We're doing that now Mm -hmm. out of a sense of denial of that. And I think that if we're called back to asking those types of questions, the kinds of answers that we're gonna come, that will evolve out of that process will be the only sustainable ones. And again, these are these are essentialist views that have been coming from First Nations people and Indigenous people for millennia. Right. You know, we, we're now in this thing where we're talking about kind of like, oh, my God, post apocalyptic, we're in the, you know, uh, Anthropocene, we're in the Cthulhu scene, etc. cetera, apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. And for Indigenous peoples, it's apocalypse still. It's apocalypse again. Yeah. It's apocalypse. Really? Mm-hmm. Where y'all been? <laughs> right.
0: It's been Kali Yuga um, for a while now.
1: Yeah, I mean that's you know. So, I think I for me that's the only solution. It's the only credible way to move forward is by starting to ask ourselves, "What would it be like if, if I were to take a minute and think?" What would I, how would I move, how would I show up in the world if I viewed all of this as connected and part of me?
0: Yeah. Which it is. And so it's taking that as sacrosanct. Yeah. So how are how are you seeing that come to fruition in your work or your ideas or your imagining this rhizomatic connection and that, that structure? Or how, how are you thinking about it? So
1: it started out with my master's thesis, which was called Cartographies of Becoming, um, mapping kind of a, a Zen, delusian, rhizomatic framework onto live performance. And looking for those clues. And one of the case studies I did was Circus Contraption to, to kind of look back at my career mm-hmm. and go, how was that already showing up? And moving forward, I'm you know, my work as I think, you know, is, you know, I've never been afraid to like go to the dark place, go to the hard place. Right. You know, And, and, but sometimes, and even though I was implicating myself in all those things, sometimes they were bereft of, they were, they were engaging in sort of a postmodern deconstruction. But as again, my friend, Michael, who's a professor at UCSC, one of my dear friends, Said you know one of the limitations of that kind of thing is you can deconstruct it and then you just leave the pieces on the floor and go there's no truth and you walk away. Right. That's not enough. (laughs) That's not enough for me. Yeah. I feel I feel it's my responsibility, and I don't take that as again same thing about with the idea that I am now going to pedagogically heal the world by doing this. I'm going to offer my best inclination, my best gift, and that is. Attaching to that some signposts to how we can do better. Mm -hmm. Some signposts on how we might reimagine a new way of being. One of the projects that I'm working on is called Artifacts of Memory. And it's this idea of, you know, we talk about kind of the ways in which we inhabit our physical space. But what if when we inhabit our physical space, there was a artifact, a fossil record, of that energetically, if not literally, right? Not Mm -hmm. like you left your shoe, but you left your you in that space. Yeah. And if someone else inhabits that space, how do those two becomings intersect? And what does that say about us? And so I'm working on this idea where I create a set of, almost like a scavenger hunt, where you would go to a place that has meaning for you and answer a certain set of questions. And those then would be stored in a database and then you would, you would then take and create another space that someone would then find through the GPS coordinates and inhabit these same spaces. And over time, mapping this data field of all the intersections of how we interlap and how we form a rhizome of our congruity over time and over space and you can kind of extrapolate from that this idea of the ways in which we are connected that we, I think, f- can find useful if we can think ourselves and imagine ourselves in those terms of occupying this horizontally diffused kind of rhizomatic framework mm-hmm. in the way that fungus has, um, as a foundational structure in the same way that I've been getting a little bit into mycology lately and this idea of, you know, the fungal structure and apparatus and how it literally forms the building blocks that make all of this possible. Right. All of these other things we're talking about addressing will mean nothing if we don't have this foundational um, system in place. And I think that we need to, to, we would do well to, to mimic that in the context of how we think ourselves in the world. And so moving forward for me, my work, both pedagogically and otherwise, is about calling us into that community, seeing the connections, seeing the ways in which that we have in common, share in common, imagine ourselves in common.
0: This reminds me a lot of the conversation I just had uh, with my friend Jeff Barney, uh, the last two podcasts, actually. He's uh, a local restaurateur uh, and kind of independent scholar and um, was, was talking about, about this idea of, of thinking as not being something that comes from me or comes from you, but it exists in the space between us that and that that's that relate relational it's getting out of that subject object split and people who are listen who've listened to my podcasts will get sick of me talking about ian McGilchrist, but his latest book is called the matter with things and one of the things that he talks about or his his theories is the idea that the brain is not an emitter of consciousness but rather a permitter of consciousness and that the consciousness is something that suffuses this lattice this mycelium between us and that that the more we participate and the more we are present with that now with each other with the environment uh, with our own internal dialogue that we're able to sort of be in tune and again this is a, back to that indigenous Framework. This is something that it sounds very much like Buddhist thinking or or Taoist thinking, um, you know, or uh, those kinds of things. Um, so, uh, yeah, and it's funny. And there's I, a
1: term, uh, a guy, Peter Zhang, calls it radical conviviality. <laughs> um, sounds very Burning Man. Which I, which I, well, I find it delightful in the sense of how you mean, how you've been speaking about it. Mm-hmm. And in that, that's the space you know. You and I talking right now. There's a becoming to lose to use deleuzean framework. The space that that where that all meets with you and I and everything else around is becoming. We're in this moment. The Bradley David. Mm-hmm. You know, we're having this this thing that is in itself this very specific kind of territorialization of these two you know, pieces of information intersecting, uh, pieces of being. And, you know, Deleuze talks about where you you're talking about in the terms of eminence without transcendence, this, mm. this, you know, following kind of Spinoza and Bergson and some of these other thinkers about this idea that, you know, that space is that space we're all connected. And I think neuroscience is, is giving us more and more information to give credence to that, yeah. We're seeing more and more, um, you know, using kind of, you know, the big hits like spooky action at a distance and some other ways in which we are seeing this connectivity even down on that level of perceivable phenomenon mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think, you know, are filling in more parts of that story. I just hope that we can arrive at those things before we do the other thing.
0: Yeah, it is. It does feel a little bit like a. A race in some ways and (laughs) because it's going to get worse before it gets better and in some ways that feels like a gift you know you you were talking about your comfort in going to the dark place and and how oftentimes that's the voice that needs to be uh listened to in order to or you know it's it's the gesture in the king's court who's saying the the ugly truths and oftentimes is the only one who's listened to um, and, and it feels like that's that's kind of what's needed now in some sense. do you do you agree?
1: I do I do I think one one place that I might kind of give an alternate vision, at least how it occurs in my head is that for me sometimes that idea of going into the quote dark place is that, it's a place we rob ourselves of. We have a tendency to distance ourselves from the chaos, from the chimera. We distance ourselves from those places that we don't want to entertain because we're worried about, you know, our own kind of animal boundaries. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I think it's just responsible citizenry to go there. And what I mean by that is is that I TA a course in college that's about monster theory and how monsters show up in our culture and what they say about us and how monsters tend to show up to speak to cultural fears. And one of the things when I do work with young artists, especially around work of kind of their own sense of creative center, is to work on helping them be in touch with that those darker shades of their humanity, mm-hmm. because once they do that, they'll see that the monster in the closet is just a jacket, you know. Yeah. And so for me, those spaces become a way we have a fuller picture and therefore a more hum- uh, a a humbler picture of ourselves. Knowing that we possess those same things, and only by speaking to them, do we do we kind of uh,
0: make porous their power. In Jungian terms, you're talking about shadow work. Yes, in a lot of ways, indeed. It's kind of touching on indeed, that yeah. and, and leaning leaning into that. Um,
1: completely. Yeah, that's completely. a great, more succinct way to put it. Indeed. So I think that, and I think that. Again, that's part of this tendency in our culture to, to think in these kind of binary ways. Mm-hmm. I was listening to someone, and alas, I can't remember their name right now, but it was a beautiful podcast about embodiment and speaking how we don't tend to think in embodied ways. We don't tend to think in our lives as this pendulum. It's very like, I either did well or I effed it up. I'm either a good person or bad person. Mm-hmm. Not that this is a pendulum of human experience. Sometimes you feel like a nut and sometimes you don't, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and that we don't give ourselves the grace to occupy that space in between, which is where we live most of our
0: lives. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things about the creative energy and about being an artist is listening to that the imaginal voice, which comes both from personal experience, but it also comes from a collective experience, and and listening to one of the reasons why I love art magazines and why I subscribe to um, New York Times, I'm <laughs> is is to see what the rhizome is saying. I mean, and those are just two heads of you know that pop up out outside of the ground, but to especially with with arts with literature is because I feel very strongly that in that rhizome lies several different truths. And by kind of listening to all of those voices, you come to a collective that leans one way or the other. And I, I, I think that's kind of what you're pointing at. So the question would be is, what are the frameworks that we as creatives can put in place that help other people begin to think in those terms or can be able to see their own creative truth or to be able to sit with that sort of embodied epistemic?
1: Yeah, I think for me, one of the solutions among, I'm sure there are many, just my best um, efforts towards that idea is one is creating work that is open-ended, creating work that is decentralized and de-hierarchical, creating devised work, creating work that is drawn from a variety of influences. And then when working in community or on subjects that affect a certain cross-section of community is to don't work on their behalf, but work with them. Absolutely. Engage allyship, engage creative partnerships to inquire, about what are the meaningful topics. Um, I think it's one of the reasons I'm, I'm of late moving from a, I'm going to put on a show to (laughs) let me work on a specific idea or with a specific set of people are in community and find out what is that temporal truth of that collective of individuals. Yeah. And then when that is presented, how do we also engage the spectators, viewers, participants in a way that still retains some of that open-ended possibility, which is why some of my work is showing up kind of more in a post-dramatic way, um, because I think that it leaves more room for that agency within the context of an audience. Um and so for me, those are some of the strategies I've been deploying to try and keep my work pliable in that way and in community mm-hmm. and in that place where people who are part of it or are experiencing it as participants who happen to be watching it, not active, capital A active, but mm-hmm. active, yeah. maintaining their ability to become part of the experience as opposed to the object of my subjectivity.
0: Right. There's also something in what you're saying that reminds me of, of the difference between putting on a show and, and the creation of the, the, the devisement to use your word of, of material that, that exploration, the play, the, the creating safe space in which people can imagine and experiment and go a little nuts and go out there and and delve in interiorly as well as exteriorly that that space that's created to me almost seems more important than the the stuff that comes out of it afterwards that that's that's valuable but that there's something in that process that is not it, it's not common knowledge, and it requires a vulnerability, and it requires that safety and that trust. Um, does that resonate yeah, with you? Yeah, I at
1: think it does, and I think when you said it, what I thought was is, yes, I very much agree with, with that, and that should be in a lot of ways at its center how art can function. But immediately the barrier I saw to that is – a certain kind of capitalist commodification that asks us to have a deliverable product that we can understand mm-hmm. and take home a little box and go, look, I possess that knowledge. We, we are, I believe that art, artful things should by their nature ask more questions than they answer. And I think oftentimes we're being kind of inculcated into a way of receiving creative products from our fellow humans as things that are answering questions and asking very few.
0: And, to, and this is, again, to that shadow work is leaning into the questions and being okay with, with an empty silence, being okay with the not knowing, being okay with that there's almost more value in holding that query than there is in that left-brained, apprehensive mode of of answer.
1: Yeah, and, and I think that that some of the popular forms of entertainment can have a kind of a a really positive affective experience on us, but Mm -hmm. that affect has very little substance. Yeah. And so it's, we kind of, it becomes kind of, you know, entertainment as Facebook like. Right. Right. It's a, it's this thing that, you know, we, we can like and then move on to the next thing without and, and I, I can see with a certain amount of tr- trist um, how that is occurring because I think, generally speaking, I think that a lot of us in culture are suffering under the weight of of a, a uh, dearth of community, a mm-hmm. dearth of connection. And even our fellow humans that I vehemently disagree with on some aspects of the right and how they're embodying the same. But I think it does come from the same kind of sadness and loss that I feel is is just become misplaced and tribal and foreclosed and shut down And I think Mm. there are a lot of external and and systemic structures that not only are supporting that
0: are engineering that.
1: Yeah. Taking money own.
0: of it. (laughs) Completely. Yeah. To be blunt. Completely. Absolutely. Yeah. To to that end, as we wrap up our hour. Um. What is the question that's not being asked right now? I thought about that. I
1: I think I may have sort of inadvertently posed or posited that uh, a few minutes ago. And that's, I think a question that's not being asked is, what would it be like if I was connected to all of this in an implicit way? What would it be like? Could I, could I carry the hatred that I do? Could I carry the exclusion that I do? Could I move through the world in these kind of extractive ways if I viewed myself as not only connected, but dependent on everything around me? Mm-hmm. And what that might look like if people just spent a little bit of time entertaining that possibility because I truthfully don't think it would take much because you only had about to ask about three questions and you're like holy shit well can't do that anymore right <laughs> right if you truly ask that question and don't deny the answer that is a radical transformation yeah it can't help but be
0: yeah and it's it's in not denying it that again we're leading into the shadow and being okay with what comes out from the void there
1: yeah. And of course, I, there's the rub.
0: I, there's the rub. <laughs> well, that seems like a good place to wrap up. Dave, it's, it's great to catch up with you and to talk shop and, and hear about what you're, you're doing. It's really inspiring. Thank you. It's,
1: it's a pleasure to be. I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to see and talk with you again, just aside from all of it, but also that you're doing this podcast that is kind of leaning into a way of being in the world that is generative and generous. And I'm very grateful for the opportunity to chat with you. I appreciate that.
0: Thank you, as ever, for being here and being part of this conversation. We'd really like to hear from you, so please let us know what you think, what you feel is important, and what you'd like to see happen in this space. Go to www.thequotidianpod.com to contact us, to listen to previous episodes, and to pick up some custom quotidian swag. Happy New Year to you all. Thanks, and be well.